Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, page 1,228 in the Pew Bible, 1,228, beginning at uh, verse 22 and reading through verse 48, but giving particular attention to verses 35 through 48. John 6, verse 22, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, They also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And the Jews the Jews then murmured against him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from me from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. 
I am the bread of life. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, our passage finds Jesus in Capernaum, speaking to a crowd of people who the very day before had been fed by him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a remote place, but they had uh, come back from there by boats, and now we're gathered, and we find out later in this chapter that they're in the synagogue speaking with Jesus, probably not on a Sabbath day because they wouldn't have been, uh, uh, boats would not have been traveling looking for passengers on the Sabbath day, and they wouldn't have traveled on the Sabbath uh, by that means, paying people to take them across the lake. So, but they're in the, in, the, in the synagogue, and Jesus is having a conversation with them, and uh, they have asked Jesus uh, for a sign, to which uh, Jesus uh, begins to respond. Now, the text that I set out for us today, verses 35 through 48, begin and end with the same affirmation. I am the bread of life. Uh, Jesus says it at the beginning of the passage, and he says it at the end of the passage. And uh, that's a a literary form that is called inclusio, which means uh, a bracketing of something, uh, uh, putting something in parenthesis, uh, only the parenthesis is not a punctuation mark, it's not a, a symbol, it's a word or a phrase where, uh, two, uh, where an idea or a passage is bracketed at the beginning and the end with identical uh, or nearly identical words or phrases or even an event. There's a, uh, a very powerful one in Mark's Gospel in, in chapter 11 where that which brackets the cleansing of the temple is the cursing of the fig tree. At the beginning of the passage, Christ cursed the fig tree. Then he goes and cleanses the temple. Then he comes back out of Jerusalem, and they see the withered fig tree. And the fig tree is there before the cleansing of the temple, and the fig tree is there after the cleansing of the temple. And the the purpose of the author is to get you to see the cleansing of the temple as being related somehow or being illustrated by uh, the f- cursing of the fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic representation of what happens in between. And there's another uh, uh, famous or uh, uh, well-known inclusio in Exodus chapter 6. I believe I even uh, have expounded on it to, to you uh, in a catechism sermon in the last uh, six months uh, where Jesus says, uh, in, or God says in Exodus 6, uh, verse 6, I am the Lord. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. And in between are seven statements, all that begin with I will, where God says what he will do as the people's Lord. You want to know what it means that I am the Lord? Well, what it, what it means is I will do these things for you. That's what I do as your Lord. Well, here we have another inclusio. We have, I am the bread of life at verse 35, and I am the bread of life at verse 48. And what is in between is an explanation of what it means to be the bread of life. And uh, I don't want to uh, try to unpack everything that is uh, here in, in, in the included in the verses in between, but to especially emphasize how Jesus is uh, the bread of life with respect to uh, uh, eternal life and uh, to uh, to being a Christian. 
because he says that uh, everyone who receives the bread of life will have eternal life. He mentions eternal life several times in this passage. And uh, those who, who have Jesus as the bread of life uh, and uh, have eternal life, or another way of saying that Christians have eternal life. Christians are those who have come to Jesus and received him as the bread of life. And there's three uh, truths in particular that I'd like to draw from this text. First of all, that Christians are those who come to Jesus and believe in him. Secondly, that you cannot make yourself a Christian by coming and believing in him. And uh, thirdly, that when you come uh, to Jesus and believe in him, you are eternally secure. Well, consider first of all the fact that that Christians are those who who come to Jesus and believe in him. Now, Jesus is dealing with this group of people who have asked for a sign. Uh, they mentioned uh, Moses gave them a sign. He gave, Moses gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus had uh, responded by saying that uh, the true bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives eternal life. Uh, he's telling them the bread that you ought to seek is not physical bread, but a person. Uh, the true bread from heaven is a person. Well, they seem to not catch on to that, right, not right away. They do later on in the text when Jesus says, I'm the one who has come down from heaven. Uh, but uh, at first they, they still are thinking of terms of ordinary bread because they say, give us this bread always. Give it to us today. Give it to us tomorrow. Give it to us the next day. And, you know, Moses fed us for 40 years, so we want you to feed us every day as well. Give it to us always. To which then Jesus says, I, I am the bread of life. And everyone who comes to me will never hunger, and everyone who believes in me will never thirst. To, uh, to never hunger and to never thirst doesn't mean that Christians never have to eat again. Uh, to understand the never hunger and never thirst, we need to understand it as I think it's especially well illustrated in what it means in uh, John's vision in the book of Revelation. In Revelation uh, chapter 7, uh, we read there, uh, I said to him, Sir, you, uh, he sees then one of the elders saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of great tribulation and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is at the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. John is seeing people who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They've, they've uh, had their sins forgiven, and they're now in heaven, and they are protected there. They'll never, they've come out of great tribulation, and he will wipe away every tear, and they'll never be hungry. They'll never be searching for food. They'll never be dying of thirst. They'll always be protected, and they'll be brought to, to fountains of living water, the fact that they never thirst again doesn't mean they never drink, but it means they're never, never deprived of what they need. 
what Jesus is saying here in, in John uh, chapter 6 is, is pretty much the same thing, that, that those who, who come to me will find that I will satisfy their needs in such a way that they'll never be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'll never be in great need. I'll never be in great deprivation. The Lord will always supply all that I need. When we hear Jesus is the bread of life, we need to think uh, broad, the, the broad definition of the word bread, uh, like it's uh, used in the Lord's Prayer. It's used there to uh, you know, give us this day our daily bread. We're not talking just about uh, the loaf of bread that we might buy at the store or that uh, someone might uh, bake in the home. Uh, we're talking about all the necessities of our physical existence. But now Jesus is using the word bread even more broadly to talk about not just our physical existence, but our spiritual existence. Whoever comes to me uh, as bread of life and eats me will, uh, uh, and, and drinks me will never uh, suffer any need, but will have their needs supplied for all eternity. Now, uh, note that when Jesus talks about himself as the bread in this passage, when he talks about himself as the bread of life in this passage, he doesn't talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He will introduce that idea a few verses ahead of our te- after our text. But he doesn't talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood here. He says, come to me and believe in me. I'm the bread of life, and you should come and you should believe. How do, how do we benefit from Jesus as bread of life by coming to him and believing in him. Later on, he'll introduce that same idea metaphorically when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, eating flesh and drinking blood is a metaphor. It's a a poetic form of speech not meant to be interpreted literally. We're given the meaning of the metaphor here Before the metaphor is introduced, let me say that again. We're given the meaning of the metaphor here before the metaphor is introduced, so that when he starts to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we know that it means coming to him and believing in him. And when we come to that language, we'll say why he introduces that, that metaphor, why he focuses uh, our thinking in that way, but for the moment, just take note that he has explained the meaning before he has introduced it so that we don't get confused and try to take the the metaphor literally as some people who heard him said, you know, how can we eat his flesh? How can we drink his blood? They they didn't understand the metaphor because they they really hadn't heard uh, or understood Jesus uh, in the passage that is before us now. But having said that, we need to ask, why does Jesus say, come and believe? Why doesn't he just say, believe, believe in me? After all, the Bible makes clear we're saved by, by faith, by faith alone. And not by anything that we do. And coming to Jesus is something that that we do. So so is salvation a combination of what we do and and what uh, we don't do? uh, uh, What 
God does for us in giving us the gift of faith. Uh, What is it? Uh, Why does he say, come and believe? Why not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Well, the Bible does say that in in, uh, a couple of places. But normally, when people are called to Christ, they're called like this, with something to do as well as something to believe. Uh, You know, one of the ways that Jesus called people to himself, and the disciples used the same expression, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or repent and be baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or uh, Paul in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 5 verse 6 says that we're saved by faith working through love. Uh, Their faith uh, immediately manifests itself uh, with uh, love. Why do, why do we have these combinations of things with faith? Well, it's to show us that true faith, saving faith, to be distinguished from dead faith. James in his epistle has a lot to say about dead faith. There's, there's all kinds of false faith as well as true faith. Well, true faith is always fruitful faith. True faith is always fruitful faith. Or as uh, the Westminster uh, Confession says, uh, though we're saved by faith alone, saving faith is never alone. And to emphasize the fact that saving faith always has fruit attached to it, like the fruit of repentance or the fruit of coming or the fruit of love, they're always mentioned together. And often the fruit is mentioned first so that you never get the impression that the fruit may come a long time later. You know, there, there are people who are under the impression that, well, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is his son. And someday I'm going to do something about that and maybe uh, uh, get, get a little bit more religious and go to church and so forth. But I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay because I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But there's no repentance. There's no love. There's, there's, there's no fruit. And uh, if uh, the Bible had simply said believe and never mentioned the fruit along with it or mentioned the fruit afterward, they, they would content themselves with saying, well, I, I, you know, the fruit will come in due time. I, I don't have to have it now. And, and you postpone it and you put it off. But no, uh, the coming and the believing go hand in hand. The coming is the fruit of faith, but they go together always. Now, what is it to come to Jesus? Well, it's the opposite of what Adam did when he heard the voice of God in the garden. What did Adam do when he heard the voice of the God in the garden? He ran away from God. He hid from God. Coming to Jesus is the opposite. Coming is going to him. Not being afraid of him. The reason Adam hid was he was afraid. But, but God has given us reason not to be afraid of Jesus. To, to see the beauty of his holiness. And the beauty of his holiness is his grace. The beauty of his holiness is his love. And when we see the, the beauty of, of who Jesus is. Of how he has loved us and given his life for us. And how he has come to save us from ourselves. Hearts are drawn to him. And 
We turn our lives around. We stop being afraid. We stop running. We stop hiding. And we come to follow Him. If anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Go make disciples and teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded. And so, when a crowd of people were converted on Pentecost Sunday, they, they, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. And they were together following Jesus. That's what it means to, to come to Jesus. Becoming a Christian... A Christian is someone who comes to Jesus, who comes and follows Him because he believes in Him as a result of believing Him, as a result of seeing His beauty, His love, His kindness, His grace, His mercy, seeing it, perceiving it. Our hearts are drawn to Him and we come to Him. That's the definition of a Christian. If you want Jesus... As the bread of life, if you want Him as the one who meets your every need for now and for eternity, then you need to stop running away from Him. Stop ignoring Him. Stop keeping Him at arm's length. Stop putting it off, saying, Oh, I'll do that when I grow up, or I'll do that when I get older, or I'll do that after I do this. Because I have some dreams that I want to accomplish before I get religious and before I get serious about my faith. You'll never find peace in anything that you will do if you're not following Jesus. Stop running away. Come to Him. Believe in Him as your Savior and Lord. But as you do so, recognize this second great truth that is derived from our text, and that is that you cannot make yourself a Christian by coming to Jesus and believing in Him. You cannot make yourself a Christian. That's what Christians do, but when Christians do it, they are not making themselves Christian. That's the meaning of what Jesus says in this passage when He says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know, Jesus is talking to a people who have been following Him in a sense, They have been searching for him. They they first followed him when Jesus tried to go away. He had heard about the death of John the Baptist. He had been deeply troubled. He wanted to go to an isolated place and be alone with his disciples. And the crowd had followed him. And and then he had compassion on them. And then he fed them. And then then he disappeared again. And then they they found him again. And they're, they're now talking with him. But although they see him, they don't see him. And although they hear him, they don't understand him. They don't believe in him. And the question is, why don't they believe in Jesus? Why don't they have faith in him? Had they not seen enough? Had they not heard enough? Well, there were 11 disciples there who had already come to faith in Jesus, who had seen a lot less and heard a lot less. In fact, they began to have their faith in him before they saw a single miracle. John the Baptist's testimony, behold, the Lamb of God was enough for them. We found the one, as they said, we found the Messiah. We found the one that Moses talked about. And they began to believe in him and follow him. So it wasn't the matter uh, that, they, that these people hadn't heard enough or hadn't seen enough yet, hadn't received enough instruction. 
Now, why don't they believe in him? Because, says Jesus, no one comes to me. No one comes. Comes in that sense of turning around and stop running and stop hiding and stop being afraid. No one comes to me and believes in me unless the Father draws him. The Father has to draw you to Christ. The Father has to draw me to Christ. Our default position is to run and hide like Adam. God has to come and intervene and draw us back to Himself. He goads us. He presses us. He pushes us. He draws us unto Christ. When Paul was on the road, Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus and uh, sees the vision of the resurrected Christ, Jesus says to him, Paul, for Saul, it's, it's hard to kick against the goads. <laughs> I've been goading you. I've been poking you. I've been pushing you. I've been drawing you. And you've been fighting. God draws us to himself. Now, this is, this is a hard truth. But it's also a glorious truth. It's glorious because it means that, that our salvation is all of grace. From beginning to end. Salvation is the work of God, a work of pure grace, only grace. All the other religions of the world require you to work hard to qualify, to, to first meet the requirements before you can be let in. But becoming a Christian is a gift of grace, totally undeserved and uh, unearned. Uh, this is emphasized again in verse 39, which says that those whom Jesus raises up on the last day are those given to him by the Father. In order to become a Christian, the Father has to give you to Christ and then in the course of time draw you to Christ. That is how we become Christians. And that means that it's, it's not something that we say one day, you know, I just realized that it would really be to my advantage to become a Christian. And so... Uh, uh, I'll go see if, if, if Christ will uh, take me, if, uh, if I'm good enough yet for him to take me. <laughs> no. no one comes to God except uh, those whom the Father draws. And how does the Father draw? Well, he says uh, they are taught of God. Uh, Jesus here paraphrases uh, something from Isaiah 54 where uh, Isaiah foresees the day when God will rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and rebuild the temple. It's a prophecy that is fulfilled by the coming of Christ into the world and his death and resurrection and ascension and uh, the sending of the Spirit and the building of the church. Uh, this is how uh, God fulfills that prophecy. And it says, in that day when this happens, they will all be taught of God. All your sons will be taught of God. And uh, now Jesus paraphrases that saying, they will all be taught of God. God. God teaches us. God instructs us. God draws us through instruction. And that instruction comes from Jesus Christ because he says, nobody has seen the Father but one, and that's uh, the one whom he has sent. And so the Father opens our eyes to understand the teaching of Jesus. 
to understand the gospel, the teaching of Jesus as it comes from the mouth of Jesus, as it comes from the mouth of of his apostles, as it comes from the mouth of the prophets of the Old Testament. That's the instruction that, that God uses to draw us to himself. And uh, when we uh, hear the word of God, we uh, see God uh, taking his lasso and throwing it out uh, with the gospel and drawing us uh, in to himself. Uh, This makes the Christian religion a religion of grace where God is the one who saves us. We do not save ourselves. If your religion is not a religion of grace, then your religion is not the Christian religion. Now, it's a religion of grace because it has to be that way. It has to be that way because, like Adam, we run and hide. Or as Paul says, that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In Romans 8, he says, the sinful mind is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Our, our natural condition is, is to run away from God, to hate God, to hate our neighbor, to despise God's law. Now, some of you may be thinking, is that really the case? Does everybody despise God's law? Don't a lot of people keep God's law? Aren't there a lot of non-Christian people in the world that that live uh, fairly uh, upright and moral lives and are respectful? of God and respectful of his law? Well, indeed, it is the case that there are a lot of people whose uh, outward life is much in conformity to God's law. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are honoring God or honoring uh, God's law. It is the case that in almost every instance, they are serving only themselves. Why do I say that? Well, take the commandment not to lie. Speak the truth. Don't lie. You know, the, that's the application of the, uh, the Ninth Commandment, and it's reiterated in the New Testament uh, that we're not supposed to lie. And a lot of people tell the truth most of the time because they know that lying is hard work. Uh, some uh, pundit said, you know, if you, if you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. But if you tell lies... You're always going to have to remember now, what did I say to him? Because what you said, you know, doesn't agree with reality. And you know the reality, and and you may not remember as well what you said to one person because you may have said something different to somebody else. And sooner or later, you're going to get caught up in your lies, and you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be ashamed because people will discover the truth, and, and then they'll see that you lied. And so just... To save yourself the embarrassment and save yourself the trouble, it's just easy to tell the truth. And so a lot of people tell the truth most of the time. But then there's always that situation, you know, where telling the truth would mean public embarrassment, real public embarrassment, or maybe a heavy financial penalty if you tell the truth. And it is within your power to to hide the truth. In this situation, you, you know that you could get away with a lie, and so... What do you do? Well, you say, well, you know, I I honor God and I I honor God's law. And so I'll just tell the truth and and suffer the shame and suffer the loss. You know, I have to honor God. That's not that's not how people react. If it's within their power to conceal the truth, to save themselves, great loss or great shame, they will lie all the time, which shows that 
that all the time, even when they're telling the truth, they're only doing it for themselves. They're not doing it because God is the Lord of my life and, I, and I'm seeking to honor Him in all that I say and do. I, there's a time in my life where, where, where this was very much the character and tenor of my life because when I was in eighth grade, I, I had three older siblings who have all turned out to be fine, upstanding uh, citizens and uh, made positive contribution uh, to, to the world and so forth with their labors. But when they were in high school, these older siblings of mine, when they were in high school, they, they went through the typical uh, teenage rebellion. And I observed a lot of grief. <laughs> my parents had a lot of grief and my brothers had a lot of grief. And I thought to myself, you know, is it really worth it? <laughs> Why not just do what's expected and endure it for four years and then you get to go away to college and you, you're free to do as you please. When I was in eighth grade, my oldest brother was in his first year of college and uh, there was no grief <laughs> concerning him uh, daily in the house anymore, you know. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what he was doing, but I knew that uh, what he could do what he wanted and not have to answer to my parents every day. And so pretty much my high school years were, were doing what was expected, except on those few times where I thought I could really get away with something and, and nobody would find out and I, it wouldn't cause any grief at home. So it wasn't that I was a good boy because... I loved God and I was seeking to honor Christ and honor his law. It was all self-serving. It was all for self. And that's, that's what we see in the world today, that no one really loves God. They just love themselves. And that's idolatry. And idolatry is hostility to God. It's not honoring God. It's not seeking God. It's not honoring the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it's true that there is none who seeks after God apart from God beginning to work in us and draw us to himself. Uh, we, uh, he may have started to draw you to himself while you were yet in the womb by giving you the, the spiritual new birth, or he may have started to draw you to himself very early in your, your life uh, through the godly instruction of your parents, or he may have only just started to draw you to himself uh, through his uh, word and the power of his spirit working in you. But the only ground of assurance that your sins are forgiven is the conviction that your salvation is all of grace, that he has drawn you to himself. If you think that your salvation is in any part due to your own effort apart from the grace of God, then you can never be sure if you've done enough. And you'll always be in doubt as to whether your sins are forgiven. But if you know that the, that the faith is a, that Christ's salvation is a gift of grace, all of grace, and that from the very beginning He drew you to Himself through His Word and by the power of His Spirit, then you can be assured that your sins are forgiven because it's not dependent on anything that you have to do. And, and you don't have to worry about whether you've ever done, whether you have already done enough. Christians are those who come to Jesus and believe in him. But when they come, they must acknowledge that they came because he drew them unto himself. And then one more thing, and that is that when you come and believe in him, you need to understand that you are eternally secure. 
In verse 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. The only way to understand this is to understand it in the context of grace. You don't deserve the gift of salvation. In fact, we deserve the very opposite. You and I have already proven ourselves unworthy, uh, uh, but he has given us the gift regardless. Therefore, we can never disqualify ourselves. Or to put it differently, we do disqualify ourselves every day. But he already has that covered. He already has that covered. We disqualify ourselves by our sins every day, by the fact that we we don't love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength. We're always falling short of the mark. But that's covered. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for all our sins. We are secure in Christ. It's all of grace. Tim Keller, in his sermon on this passage, uh, uh, likens it uh, or brings into uh, our consideration the the work of a shepherd because Jesus uh, himself does that too in John 10 where uh, he... uh, he talks about the, the shepherd uh, guarding the sheep. In John 10, verse uh, 27, we read uh, this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. They never perish. Nobody will ever snatch them out of my hand. Now, some people, some people say, well, that's true. Uh, he'll never let Satan uh, destroy our faith, but, but we can destroy our own faith. Well, that's not understanding the work of a shepherd. The work of a shepherd, one, one of his biggest jobs is to protect the sheep from themselves. You know, when, when the Bible calls God a shepherd, that's one of the, uh, the greatest insults to you and me, because that makes us sheep, and sheep are dumb animals, dumb animals who are always getting themselves in trouble. You know, if a shepherd says, uh, well, I didn't lose any uh, sheep to the, to the wolves uh, today, and I didn't uh, lose any sheep to the lions or the bears today, uh, but I did lose uh, four or five sheep who, who wandered off on their own and, and got lost and and I haven't found them, you know. Well, if a shepherd loses three or four sheep who have just wandered off, he's not a good shepherd. A good shepherd is to make sure that sheep don't wander off on their own. He's to, to keep an eye on them and watch them and, 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 and protect them. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And none of my sheep will perish. No one, not even themselves, will snatch themselves out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I'm the good shepherd. I will take care of you. Now, some might object and say, well, you know, the Bible's full of warnings against falling away. If, if we can't fall away, why is the Bible so full of warnings to fall away? Well, any of you who have been a parent... <laughs> Uh, or even a child of a parent, know 
that parenting involves all sorts of warnings. Every day, you warn your children against certain things, and then you build systems to protect them from those things. Sometimes, you let them toy with danger just so that they begin to taste some of the painful effects, but you always have a safety net there. You're, you're always watching them like a hawk, or you build a fence around the yard, or you put uh, a netting around the... Uh, the uh, thing that they jump on, you know, in the backyard, the trampoline. Uh, you, do, you build all kinds of safety features so that they don't get hurt. Well, why, if you build all these safety features, why do you warn them? Well, because you want them to mature. You want them to grow. You want them to, to learn to, to fight the good fight with themselves. <laughs> You know, that's why Jesus left Canaanites in the land. Uh, when Joshua conquered the land of Canaan, he killed them, the kings of the south and the kings of the north. You know, he conquered them. But God said, I'm going to leave some Canaanites in the land so that future generations are going to learn warfare. And, and God lets us also uh, face temptation and deal with temptation so that we learn to put to death the old nature and put on the new nature more and more. But he, he lets us be tempted. But then he says... But fear not, your faith will not fail. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith won't fail. I have the safety net. I will catch you. I will protect you. Well, doesn't, uh, doesn't the doctrine of eternal security make people lazy? No, it doesn't make true Christians lazy. You know, some, sometimes a man will, will woo a woman and convince her of, of his love and and get her to say, yes, I will marry you, and they get married, and as soon as they're married, the man becomes an abuser and uh, takes advantage of his, of his wife and, and treats her cruelly, and it becomes clear that he just wanted uh, free living help and, and that sort of thing and really wasn't ever in love with her. And that's the case if someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm eternally secure, well, then I can do as I please. I can, I can step all over Christ and, and ignore his will. Well, then that person never really loved Christ, was never really a Christian. No, true Christians who love Christ will persevere. Now, this grace by which God draws us is a tremendous uh, grace. Uh, it is always a working. Uh, there's a beautiful picture of it in, in Hosea chapter 11 where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to, one, became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. They didn't know it. They kept rebelling. But I kept on working. I kept on feeding them. I kept on bringing them to myself. That's how you need to understand your salvation. So that your hearts will overflow with love. And that you will come. Come, follow Him, and believe in Him always. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we become Christians by, believe, by coming to You and believing You, and that when we do, 
we, we are fed and nourished with everything that we need for all eternity and will never be in danger again. And we thank you that our coming is your work and that you have drawn us to yourself with cords of kindness and with bands of love. Even though we have sometimes rebelled and, and kicked against the goads, you continue to work to bring us to yourself day by day. Oh, Father, help us to love you and serve you in gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.